Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we gather this morning to bring you honor and glory because you alone are holy and you alone are worthy of our praise. We praise you for your long suffering. You continue to deal mercifully with mankind despite our rebellion against you. We praise you for your grace. You have not left us hopeless, but have given us your son to bear our sins and to bring us into your presence. We praise you for your love. You have seen us in our helpless state. You've seen into the depravity of the darkest places of our hearts, and still you revealed yourself to us through your son, Jesus. And you've given us faith that can rescue us from ourselves. As we celebrate the season of Advent and remember the gift of Jesus, God in the flesh, we remember and give thanks for the gift of faith. As we face trials and tribulations of many kinds, may we have endurance in our faith. You are not slow to fulfill your promises, as some count slowness, but you are patient and desire that all would come to a saving faith in you. May our faith in you be strengthened by the hearing of your word, by the singing of the saints, and by the fellowship of your holy church. Lord, you have called your people to endure faithfully, just as you have demonstrated faithfulness on the cross through your son Jesus. May we have this mind, the mind of Jesus Christ, among us, and may it unite us in our faith that we would be humble and faithful, enduring much for the sake of your name. Father, we admit that we often seek our own comfort and control in the midst of chaos and uncertainty, but we confess to you this morning our great need for you. We need your Holy Spirit in the midst of all the physical sickness going on in this church. Father, grant us your peace to endure. Gift us physical healing, we pray. We need your Holy Spirit in the midst of relational discord. As we look towards the preaching of your word this morning about unity, we pray that we would be united with Christ and with each other, just as you and Jesus were united in spirit and purpose. Father, we pray for the local assembly of your body. We pray for Outward Church and Pastor Matt Porter. We know that they face many of the same circumstances we face, and so we pray the same for them. We pray for endurance, for peace and unity to strengthen their faith in you so that you might receive glory. And we also pray the same for Pastor Bush Thomas in India. May you unite his church around the good news of the gospel. May they be focused on the gift of your son that saves and brings healing and joy to all people. We pray for the preaching of your word this morning and for the receiving of communion. May our hearts be soft, may our faith be grown, and may you receive all of the glory. In the name of our faithful King Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Tyler. Go ahead and uh, take a seat. Where is unity found? Our society and the world that we live in is always looking for the next big thing that we can kind of band together and be united against or even united Four. The most basic way we see this, well, not the most, but one of the ways we see this, and it's uh, applicable to all of us, is sporting events. If you have ever attended a sporting event, you are with others who are like-minded, who are unified towards a common purpose. 
They are there for the, part, the, for the most part to cheer on their team so that they can bring home that W, right? To bring home the win. I love going to Blazers games where you have people all around you cheering for the exact same thing and there is a sense of great camaraderie. This isn't unique to sporting events, right? Anytime there's an agenda that is being driven forward, you can find common unity among those proponents of it. We all want to be united for a purpose. There's a universal truth that sits and underneath that statement. One could argue that, well, you know, I'm a loner. I, I'm just kind of like being alone. I'm not really united for anything. But I kind of wonder that even if a certified antisocial loner would maybe find commonality with others who are similar and like-minded in that way. The thing about being unified is that it tends to be short-lived. Right? As soon as the sporting event ends and you take off that jersey or you go home or the season ends and you don't have the championship or as soon as that politician isn't elected, is there much to be unified about anymore? It, it also seems like unity is under attack constantly. Right? Maybe it's the enigmatic coach whose methods are questionable or, or a politician who lacks character, but their policies are in line with my own. There have been many causes throughout the history of the world that have lost momentum because of division, because of disunity. We're in the holiday season. It's a great example of this. Supposedly the most peaceful time on earth. But it's actually filled with conflict and stress from a lack of unity on what to do, on where to go, on what to buy. While we all long to be unified with like-minded people, with our friends, with our family, with others who share our passions, this world doesn't make it easy. It is constantly under attack, constantly being bombarded. Divorce is prevalent, churches split, nations war, and unity does not last. We've been working our way through the book of Joshua. Today we're in chapter 22, Joshua chapter 22, and the people of God have gone from nomads to conquering the land of Canaan. The last 12 chapters of Joshua were filled with details of tribal boundaries, and Hans did a wonderful job in opening that up to us and applying it to our lives. They were de dealt with who's going to live where. And in those chapters, we saw the grace, we saw the mercy, and we saw the faithfulness of God towards his people. Once the land is given out, we, we now begin to see what life is like in the land. And much like our lives, the kingdom of God expands and we live life. We go about our daily lives. And yet, it isn't all happily ever after. No, instead, the real work of living in the kingdom begins. Threats begin to arise and the unity and safety of the people of God begin to be threatened. And I'll be quite honest, this passage this week has been one that has put me personally through the ringer. 
This week I've been asking myself the same question that I would like you all to consider. Am I contributing to the unity that I have with the people of God? Am I contributing to the unity that I have with the people of God? And the title is this, God's people maintain their unity through the worship of God. God's people maintain their unity through the worship of God. This morning we will see that the people of God who have settled in the land must maintain the unity that was present in the past and it takes work and effort going forward. The first point of the sermon that we're going to see in verses 1 through 9 is united by faithfulness. And we have... uh, a long chapter to read, and so we are, will do the uh, normal, breaking it into chunks, but um, I do ask that you pay attention and really just see what it is that the Lord is communicating through his word to you today. So, let's look at Joshua chapter 22, verses 1 through 9. At that time... Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these days, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with your whole heart and with all your soul. And Joshua, so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now, to the one tribe, to the one half tri- of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given possession of Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them. He said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. The wars were over. The lands were divided, cities established, and now the two full tribes of uh, Reuben and Gad and the one half-tribe of Manasseh were given their land allotment. And their land allotment was different, significantly different than the rest of the tribes, the other ten. If you remember back to Joshua chapter 1, these tribes had been promised land But first, they needed to act as mercenaries. This text is found in Joshua 1, verses 12 through 15. Let me read it. 
And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing for you a place of rest, and he will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all of the men of valor among you must, shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives you rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So the land was subdued. All the tribes had been given their allotment. All that was left then was for these tribes to take possession of their land. And as it had been promised to them, Joshua did. In verse 4 of chapter 22, he instructs these tribes to return to the east side of the Jordan. But while there is a river separating the the main portion of the, the people of God from these tribes, they aren't to let that stop them from maintaining God's law. Their love for the Lord was supposed to not be affected by their separation from the main portion of God's people. Their love for God was not to waver despite the separation, the boundary of a river that divided them. This is a fairly universal reality, right? The object of our affection, if not nearby, can be hard to maintain. If we're not near or next to something, it can be hard to be affectionate towards it. It's harder for us to care about things that are far away. We lived 40 minutes uh, away from a church at one point in our married life, Janelle and I. It was difficult and hard to be a part of that church and to build significant relationships there because it was, we were separated by a significant distance. Joshua's instruction for these tribes is that they would be faithful to obey God's law. River or no river, they were bound by the same covenant. The instruction that we see in verse 5 of chapter 22, uh, you can re- maybe it might uh, strike you as familiar. It's an echo of the great Shema. You shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Only be careful to observe the commandment, right, that Mo- Moses gave to you. Verse 5, and you, you shall love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. No matter the distance between them, their love for God was to be fostered in their hearts continually. This would result in their obedience to the law of God. What united these people, the people of Israel, wasn't their close proximity, their national ties. No, it was faithfulness. In the past, it had looked like these men, these men of valor, giving themselves sacrificially and serving in battle. But in the present In the here and now, it was to look like loving, serving, and living as the people of God. 
They were to take the spoils of war, we see in verse 8, and live in the land that God had promised to them. God's faithfulness was the very basis for the faithfulness of the people. To, to live as the unified people of God was to be passionately obedient about the very commands of God. And God continued to fulfill every word that he had spoken through his servant Moses, and Joshua and the people of God were beneficiaries of his faithfulness. It, it, it united them together and gave them all that they had, all that they needed, riches and land, and the reward for God delivering them. I mean, even those who had been given the most would continue to reap God's faithfulness. I mean, you can see like these, these, uh, these tribes took home great wealth, but not only did they take it home, they had a home to go to. With what we see coming next... It seems that the tribes took the command of Joshua very seriously. But when unity of worship is the command, appearances aren't always what they seem to be. This leads us to point number two, unity questioned. Looking at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben... And the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard of it. Behold, the tr- people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region above, about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent out to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague among the whole congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord, your, our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity? So sometime after Reuben and Gad and Manasseh 
departed from the main tribes, they built a massive altar by the river. We have no idea about the timeline of this. Uh, how long did this take for them to decide to do this? How long did it take to complete? We don't know. But we do know that it was large. Verse 10 says it was of imposing size. We also know that it was uh, not just a, a unique altar, but it was a replica. It was a replica altar of the, of the altar that was at the tabernacle in Shiloh. Later on in the chapter, we see uh, this reference very clearly in verse 28, that it was a copy of the official altar. Nonetheless, when the people of Israel heard about this altar and probably saw it, right, as they're out fishing on the Jordan River or hanging out, like, oh, look, that's a big stone altar on the other side. What are they up to? They gathered for war. They gathered for war. They, they came armed together to the tabernacle at Shiloh. They were ready to throw down. They knew the commands of God. Don't worship any other gods. Don't even worship me in a way that I haven't told you is okay. The worship of God happens on his terms in his way. We would have no clue how to worship God except that he tells us how to. And it appears that the eastern tribes have stepped away and out from under this reality. They had built this replica without, and without doing any due diligence, the other, their brothers assembled for war. Now, thankfully, cooler heads prevailed and they end up sending a delegation out and in verse 16 uh, highlights their charges. Me paraphrasing, what is this that you have done? Right? This is in direct opposition to God's commands. Remember what happened at Peor? Re remember Achan? This was just a, a few uh, chapters earlier for us. It wasn't that long ago. That didn't turn out well for anybody. Achan, right, we're familiar with. It was just a few chapters ago that we saw his, what his rebellion resulted in. Punishment for the entire nation of Israel. But Peor, this is a story that may not be as familiar with you, and you can read about it in Numbers chapter 25 uh, all the way through chapter 31 as it unfolds. But the men of Israel were tricked into having sex with the women of Midian, and they ended up sacrificing to the god Baal. And this brought judgment, not only on those who had committed the crime, not only on those who had participated, but on the entire nation. In both instances, the sin of a few brought judgment on the people of Israel. And desiring to keep their nation pure from sin, they were ready for war. River or no river, we still are one people, and we will not tolerate sin among us. The story of Israel is not the story of happily ever after. Peace was short-lived, and the unity of the people of God begins to be attacked. Are, are they really unified? Have they abandoned God and his commands? What's, what's taking place here? Now, we must remember 
that this story is not prescriptive. It isn't telling us exactly what we should do, but we must read this story in the grand scheme, the grand storyline of Scripture. The picture, the story of Joshua is the advancement of the kingdom of God as it spreads, and the result is the rest of God's people as they take over the land and live in the land. And what we see here is that the unity of God's people is constantly under threat. The threat here is the sin of assumption, right? Can you imagine the rumor mill that must have been going through the land? I can see, I can see the hashtag now, hashtag monolith, right? Like, look there. God's people, without much information at all, were ready to gather for war against their fellow men. They were ready to jump into action and viewed their fellow brothers as a threat without even hearing them out. The threat of sin, right? The threat of sin was very real. It was a very real issue in the, in the history of Israel. It wasn't enough that they lived in a world with very real and present danger from the outside, right? From the, their enemies. The danger here to the, uh, the people of Israel resided right there in their midst, right in their own sinful hearts. What we see is that life in the kingdom of God would require work, it would require effort. There seems to be this sort of nostalgia about living with other Christians. That, that treats salvation as some sort of miracle that makes living with each other easier. And it does give us a commonality, a, a bond that we can have, right? We do all have the same spirit. But even living life in the land requires effort. It requires work. You don't have to look far to see that churches split Divorces take place, and unity is not easy to come by, even among the people of God. I mean, how easy is it to automatically assume of a fellow Christian, much like Israel assumed here in verse 16? What is this breach of faith? It is easy to throw an accusation before inquiring. And these assumptions are cracks in relationships that we aren't made to carry. Our, our lives are not meant to carry these, these relational fractures. The rumor mill spreads, and in our hearts we assemble for war without ever inquiring of the other party. It doesn't even have to be public. It can take place in the dark, lonely thoughts of our own life. I mean, marriage is a great picture of this. How easily do we gather for war against our spouse when we have been wronged? How, how quickly we imagine the worst of them. It applies to all areas of our life. Our relationships begin to be undermined and it destroys what God has put inside of his people, his spirit. It was this reality that I have had to deal with in my own heart this last week, as I confessed earlier. That I have had contributed to a fractured relationship in my marriage. 
And I wonder what relationships come to your mind as you sit here and listen to this word. Relationships that maybe you have case built and assembled for war. That you've assumed sin but haven't maybe spoken to that individual. The New Testament people of God have been called out from the world and been given a new identity, the identity of Jesus Christ. Earlier, we heard from John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, the prayer that he prays for his church, for his followers. Look again at verses 20 and 21 of John 17. Part of his prayer to God. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that, you, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, Jesus prays specifically not for his disciples that saw him, but for the Christians that would come after. He prayed for us. The reality of our Christian life is that we are united into Christ and into each other. But this reality isn't something that we inherently recognize. I mean, just the fact that Jesus had to pray for it tells us that we need to grow in our realization of it. We don't look at each other with magic glasses, but we grow and mature in our love for each other as our faith grows in Christ. And so fellow Christian work, labor, to be united with other believers. The guiding principle for living life among the people of God is love. That's what we're talking about, love. We have been called to love, uh, to a love for others that supersedes the standards of this world. It is far and above the standard that this world offers us. Our life with other Christians, should reflect the love of God. What does this look like? What does this love look like? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter of love, instructs us. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. These principles, Christian, are what should be the character of your life. They should characterize your life among the people of God. And if love has informed our life together, I wonder what impact that would have on people watching us. Our love for the other Christians in our life is an evidence that we truly are a Christian. It is love that, that unifies us with each other. And while these principles press us towards unity with others, our text in Joshua is clear that it isn't just love that matters. No, their truth is also just as important. Truth must also be a guiding principle for the people of God. 
the people of Israel were very aware of the ramifications of sin. They knew firsthand that sin in the camp led to the destruction of God's people. And so we see this this delegation of ten heads of families, and Phinehas, who is uh, the son of the priest, in verses 13 and 14, cross the river to find out what truth actually is. What is the truth of this situation? And it seems that in this situation, cooler heads were prevailing. They did their due diligence, right? They were armed and ready for war, but before they went and attacked, they thought, well, we better check and make sure. Like, what is this that we're actually seeing? Being the united people of God requires, yes, having a love for each other, having a love that, that, as 1 Corinthians tells us, is patient, is kind, and it's not full of envy. But it also requires truth. It also requires truth. It requires holding the truth up as the standard. Sin in the camp brings God's judgment And this balance between holding up the truth and being united in love always seems to be the threading of a needle. It's not easy. We we can't be the sin police walking around correcting everyone and anyone who appears to be outside of truth. But we also can't just have this great love for everybody and never hold anybody accountable. Truth can be weaponized and used to coerce and manipulate. But love can be soft and not hold much of a standard at all. But the people of God are to be ruled by a balance of both truth and love. This balance is constantly under scrutiny. If you err to one side or the other, you reach a tipping point, and the balance is thrown off. Are we willing to call sin, sin, and truth, truth, but are we also willing to love others and to love the people? From the most egregious of sins that even the the world would frown on to the simple quiet sins of our own hearts, are we willing to put to death the sins that fracture the people of God and ruin the relationships just as much as we are uh, putting to death bad theology or sexual sin. If we desire to be people of truth, then we should be consistent with holding ourselves accountable and others as well. Where do you find yourself? Do you find that you love truth so much that you're willing to hold others to that truth but tend to be unloving? Or do you find that you are gracious and forgiving so much that others don't really know what truth is, the truth of Scripture? My guess is we all err to one side or the other. Balance is key. It takes both to unite the people of God, truth and love. If we don't have love, we we have no willingness to be around one another. Our lives are going to be filled with a lack of patience, a lack of kindness, with enviousness, with boasting and bragging and arrogance. 
We'll be rude. So we, we ought to press ourselves into this truth and love. For unity is found. Unity among the people of God is found when we lovingly uphold God's gracious truth. In Joshua, that is what we are instructed on. So what is it that Joshua tells us in the next section of verses that, uh, that unifies the people of God? Well, let's read. The third point, unity upheld. And we see this in verses 21 through 34. The people of God faithfully persevere by being united through the worship of God. Perseverance among the people of God is found through the worship of God. Let's look at verses 21 through 34. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come that our children that your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made a Jordan boundary between us and you, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us. That we do not perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time, you have no portion of the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke. It was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and in the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. 
And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So when the eastern tribes were accused of building this altar of worship in a way that, did, that God did not deem appropriate, their response when accused is heartwarming and humbling. They reiterated twice to, to, for emphasis, the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, the, the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows and the Israel itself know. They are willing to face the music with a clear conscience. But their stated purpose for building this altar is that it was to be a witness for future generations. Before God, they knew that their intent was good, was right. And this massive replica of an altar is not to be used in any real way other than to point towards the center of the worship of God at Shiloh. The the eastern tribes were, in a very real way, attempting to make a teaching monument for their children, about the worship of God in a, in a very easy and tangible way. It was to serve as a witness that even though there was a river separating them, the people of God are united by something greater. They are united by the truth that God is the Lord and that they should love him alone with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their strength. And every time this replica altar would be seen, it was pointing each of them towards this reality. The response of the delegates of this investigative crew can be seen in verse 31. The Lord is here. You have not sinned, and his judgment will not become because you are righteous. That's me, my paraphrase. Their imaginations of God's judgment and the people's unfaithfulness had been just that, had been conjured up in their imagination. Instead, what they found were two and a half tribes attempting to maintain faithfulness to God while being disconnected from the majority of God's people. And they did this through the building of a monument that would point them and their children to something greater, Here we come to the center of what it looks like to be united as the people of God. What unites the people of God is the pure worship of God. That's what this this replica altar pointed towards. It pointed towards the corporate gathering of God's people at the tabernacle where they would gather to worship and celebrate who God was and is. That was true then. That's what united the people of Israel, their worship of God. And that is still what unites the people of God today. It is the worship of God that brings God's people together. It is the the worship of God where truth and love collide. 
where we can love one another while holding up and proclaiming God's truth. It is the worship of God that brings his people together. And we worship God in the truth because of who he is and we obey him by loving his people. Once again, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And so here, Paul in 1 Corinthians is making a plea for unity. Why? How? What's the basis? Well, just a few verses later, in 23 and 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We, as Christians, worship Jesus Christ, who has united the people of God. And while we are diverse, it is in his death, burial, and resurrection that brings life, that brings unity to the people of God. For Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. When we see Jesus, we see God, and that leads us to worship. We have just recently, well, marketers might say, yeah, well, more recently, more distant than recent, but we are recently in the Christmas season. where we celebrate the birth of this Savior. It is that Savior who would grow to become a man. And in his life, death, and resurrection, not only pointed to who God was, not only pointed to God, but was God in the flesh. That That is what it means to be a Christian, to believe that Jesus Christ came to rescue you from your sins. And to bring people like us to himself and together. Breaking down the barriers of hostility. Breaking down the animosity. Breaking down the desire to assemble and make war against others. We are brought from death to life. United into a people of God who worship God together. And this unity is unlike anything else in the world. It is unlike any other unity that we try to accomplish at sporting events or through politics. Some would compare this unity to a family. But let me tell you that, that though a family is a great metaphor, it is not actually the, great, the, the most full picture What exists among Christians goes much further and deeper than family. What unites us is spiritual, not physical. Eternal, not temporary. The church, the the people of God are united together through the person and work of Jesus and are bound together for eternity. And this is a reality that informs, this is a truth that informs how and why we love each other. When the people of God experience disunity, 
It is a ripping of the spiritual fabric that supposedly unites us together. Because it functionally denies the union that we have with Christ. Gossip, slander, vitriol towards our fellow members undermines a spiritual union that we have no business messing with. Right? And we could, we could put d- divorce and our marriage into that same category. This goes for the life you live with your spouse all the way to the relationships that you have with people in this church specifically, but at other Christians as well. People from differing political persuasions, people who eat or dress differently than you, we are united by something greater. We are united in worship towards God. And being connected to the worship of God with God's people is key to the faithful perseverance in the kingdom of God. Right? We, we, there are enemies outside. We don't need our own enemies inside of us. We are called to be connected to a people where truth and love can be held up, where our lives can witness to the work of the Spirit that is taking place. And believe it or not, that's the purpose of our life. That's the purpose of your life. Your life, its relationships, its failures, its successes are all to be used for the glory of God, for the worship of God, for we are created to that purpose. So is, is your life doing that? Is your life characterized by glorifying God? That is, after all, our chief end, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The unity of the people of God in Joshua and in our day points to the center of, God, of the worship of God. It is what unites us, it is what binds us, and it is what builds us. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you and praise you that you have brought us from death to life and have brought us to yourself. Lord, we pray that we, even now as we enter into this time of communion, would not take lightly that we are together as one people proclaiming your life death, and resurrection. Amen.